You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everybody. For all you moms out there, let me be another to wish you all a happy Mother's Day. Uh, and this morning, I have the joy of continuing us in our sermon series on First John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. That's 1 John 5, 1 through 5. So there is a trope in storytelling. And this trope is called, it was with you all along. That phrase you probably have known, heard before. It, it's all throughout any kind of story and literature, TV shows, the whole thing. So the idea here is that the protagonist is given some seemingly impossible task. Some tasks they have no idea how to accomplish, but through various trials, the words of a mentor, maybe a big musical number, uh, the protagonist realizes that they've had the power that they need to accomplish this task, and it was in them the whole time. Think of Rafiki's words to Simba in The Lion King, where he tells him, yeah, yeah, some Lion King fans, uh, where he tells him that he had the power of his father in him, uh, which motivated Simba to take back the pride lands from his wicked Uncle Scar with little more than the help of a meerkat and a warthog. Uh, Think of the end of The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy asks to go home, and she is told that she's had that ability the whole time. She's just had to learn it for herself. And there are countless more examples, and you can probably think of more yourselves. And so as we turn to our text in John, we see that he is calling us as believers to a seemingly impossible task, to keep the commands of God and to overcome the world, a task that even in hearing this, we can see is far too great for us, a task that we can in no way accomplish on our own. But we will also see that John is telling us that through the victory of Jesus, we've had this power in us all along. So now hear these words from 1 John 5, verse 1-5. through Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you speak to us through your word this morning and show us what it means that we have overcome the world through the victory of Jesus. Challenge us with that truth. Convict us of ways that we don't realize his victory and the ways that we still live enslaved to sin. And comfort us with the hope of your gospel that promises that even though we fail, that the victory you won is not ours to lose. Amen. 
And so as we look at this passage, we are going to start off by revisiting John's idea that we are the children of God. And then we're going to start with this big foundational statement, the same one that John starts this passage with, and then from there, move on to talk about how as children of God, we keep the commands of God and share in the victory of God. And so that's our main points. As children of God, we keep the commands of God and share in the victory of God. And so starting off right there in verse 1, John is making sure that we understand that we are children of God. And more specifically, that all those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. Now, if you're thinking, haven't we heard this before in our discussion of 1 John? The answer is yes. Yes, we have. We've heard this multiple times. Uh, At this point in John's writing, we are catching him in transition as he is concluding his arguments from the end of chapter 4 and then merging them right into his next idea. But John actually knows how to merge, unlike what many of us experience at this intersection right out here, wherever it is. And so hopefully we won't end up with a couple trucks to the fence this morning. Um, But if we can remember back, John lays out this idea that we are children of God emphatically at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he beautifully displays the love that God has for us, uh, which Matt walked us through so well last week. And then he explains that as recipients of such great love, that we are to then show that love to one another. But now we're going to zoom in on John's transition. Because if we're not careful, this can begin to feel like a last time on 1 John, where we hastily grab the remote and try to skip the intro. We've all done it. Um, But John is setting us up. He is purposely distilling and coalescing his argument down to then launch us into his next point. Take a look with me at verse 2. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. Now this sounds a lot like our text from last week in chapter 4, verse 21, where John says, And this is a commandment we have heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. But notice that in our passage today, John is reversing that order on us. Instead of saying, you know you love God when you love his children, he says, you know you love the children of God when you love God and obey his commands. And so John is doing two things. One, he is again emphasizing that strong link that must exist between loving God and loving others, particularly those in the family of God. But two, he is transitioning here. He is merging to a discussion on keeping the commands of God. And so this is the part where John flips his turn signal, hits the gas, and makes the merge. Because as children of God, we love the people of God. We obey his commands. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And so now John has brought us to this idea 
from this idea of being children of God and keeping of God's commands to this idea of these commands not being burdensome. And so typically when I do my sermon prep, I kind of print out the text on a piece of paper and I really mark it up. Like I circle and underline, I highlight, I doodle. Um, And on my first couple read-throughs of this passage, all I could think to write next to this phrase of the commands of God was not burdensome was, are you sure? Are you sure? Because following the commands of God do often feel so very burdensome. They can feel so heavy. And I'm sure many of us can think through relationships, opportunities, lifestyles that we have walked away from in an effort to follow the commands of Jesus and the teaching of Scripture. And we can think of Christians around the world right now who are suffering for their faith and who live out these commands under threat of persecution. Fellow believers that worship in secret and who flinch every time there's a knock on the door. And that's not even to mention the countless throughout history who have died for their belief in Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself even says to pick up your cross and follow me. And if there is something that may feel like a burden, it might be this giant Roman killing device that Jesus asked his followers to carry with the warning that they will be hated and persecuted for his namesake. So how can John look at us and say the commands of God are not burdensome? John himself knew the cost. According to the church history, John was dipped in boiling oil for his belief in Jesus and was exiled to an island to live out the rest of his life. And not the good kind of island. So how does John square this? How are we supposed to square this and make sense of this? And to help answer this question, we can turn to Matthew's gospel where Jesus himself says something very, very similar. Possibly even something uh, that John was thinking on as he wrote these words that we've read this morning. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says these words. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so I hope it is apparent as we hear these words of Jesus, that there is this deep connection between John's statement that that the commands of God are not burdensome, and Jesus' words here that his burden is light. And in reading these words of Jesus, we can't afford to miss the context. If we look earlier in Matthew chapter 11, we see that Jesus had just received word that his cousin, John the Baptist, not the same John who wrote 1 John, that's a key detail, um, but John the Baptist was sitting in jail after angering Herod, who was a ruler of the day, and was facing a death sentence. And then we see Jesus begin to call out all these cities that he had been to and performed miracles in, but cities that had rejected him 
because they were so deeply entrenched in their empty religious practices and blinded to the truth. And it is at this point that Jesus gives these comforting, soul-uplifting words. This is not a Jesus who had just performed the feeding of the 5,000. It's not a Jesus who was triumphantly entering into Jerusalem to raucous applause. It was a Jesus who was thinking about his friend and cousin sitting in jail, even though he had done nothing wrong, and who was lamenting rejection amongst people who had seen his mighty works and people that he had ministered to. And then it was deep in that sorrow and deep in that rejection that Jesus tells his followers, take my yoke for it is easy and his burden is light. And then he tells them that he is gentle and lowly in heart and in him they will find rest for their souls. And so what we can see is that Jesus is not promising an easy life. He's not saying there won't be hardships and pain and rejection and loss. I mean, Jesus himself experiences these very things throughout his own life. And so do the rest of people throughout the New Testament. But instead, he promises rest. He promises purpose. He promises that we will not endure these hardships alone. For he is with us, and he is gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes, in reflecting on this passage, says this. He says, Jesus did not say, take my chair or take my mattress, because that is equipment for sitting and sleeping. Instead, he said, take my yoke. You'll be working, you'll be walking, you'll be moving forward, carrying your cross, and life at times may be uncomfortable, hard, and trying. But walk my way and you will find rest. The refreshment that comes with forgiveness, the renewal that comes from purposeful living, and the rest that comes from working for him. The yoke of Jesus, the task that he calls us to, the way he instructs us to live, offers a purpose and a hope and a joy that nothing else ever can. And it would seem that John is saying something very similar here in verse 3 by saying that the commands of God are not burdensome. He's not saying they're not hard. He's not saying that we will not struggle to keep them. And he is not saying that there won't be days where we just fall flat on our face. But instead, he is saying that these commands are not for our detriment. They are not intended to weigh us down, to cause us pain, but instead they are a marker of God's love to us and his favor towards us. Remember, he starts off verse 3 by saying, for this is the love of God that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. These commands are not the frivolous instructions of some careless cosmic deity. They are an evidence of God's love. And why? Because they offer us hope and purpose and ultimately rest, because they are good. If we look back to the Old Testament, we see that after God had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he gave them safety, he gave them food, but he also gave them instruction and laws and commands because he was saying, this is how you live as my people. 
This is how you live as my holy people, as a free people. And so as the children of God, as the freed people of God, we live and love his commands. A theologian, J.C. Ryle, puts this in a somewhat funny, but an incredibly insightful way by saying that the commands of God are as burdensome to us as feathers are to a bird. He is saying that they don't weigh us down, they don't cause us pain, but instead they lift us up and adorn us as children of God. And so now let me ask, do you find the commands of God to be burdensome? Are they something that, while at times are hard and difficult, that brings you comfort and purpose and rest? Or are they just a weight that you bear around your neck? Are they just motions that you go through hoping that one day they'll pay off? Or maybe because it's the only motions you've ever known. And please know that I'm not talking about perfectly obeying every command of God. No one in this room can claim that. But is there something in you that sees the way God has called us to live in the scriptures that makes you say, that is beautiful, that is good, that is how I desire to live and spend my days? And if not, let me implore you to explore that, to do some work probing your soul. Because there is a danger in going through the motions of obedience without ever experiencing their goodness, without ever finding joy in God's word and hope in his promises. And yes, there may be seasons in your life where your faith may feel dry and fragile. And the motions of obedience are the only thing that feels like it's keeping your faith afloat. I've been there, and many of us in this room have been there, or maybe are there now. But if that's all you've ever known, if you've never tasted the sweetness of God's love, if you've never felt gratitude and joy that the God of this universe has given us a way to live, a way to glorify him, a way to spend our days that truly means something, that has deep value, then let me encourage you to reflect on that and to ask God that the Spirit does that work in you to show you the joy of his commands. Maybe even be so bold as to pull someone aside whether that be a friend or someone in your Bible study, and ask them how they are experiencing God's love and kindness through his commands. And ask them to join you in prayer and walk with you as you work and wrestle through this. Because what the gospel has to offer and what we have in Christ is far from just a set of rules and thou shalt nots. What we have instead is adoption into the family of God. What we have instead is the love of God and the way of truth and light that we are called to live in. And so as children of God, we keep the commands of God. But these two things are only possible because of our last point and because of what John goes on to say in verses 4 and 5. Because we share in the victory of God. 
He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so as we strive and as we often fail at keeping the commands of God, this is the point where John looks us in the eye and tells us that the power was in us all along. But not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of the victory of Jesus. And so if, as we were going through that last point, if you felt this weight thinking that while you want to keep the commands of God, because you do find them good and you find them beautiful, you often find yourself falling woefully short. I hope that in reading these verses, you felt that weight lift right off your shoulders. Because as John says earlier, there is forgiveness, complete forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. But through his death and victory, we don't just have forgiveness, but we also have the power to overcome sin. We can overcome the world and we can share in Christ's victory. But what does John mean here when he says overcome the world? Because he says it like three times in this verse. So we really must be trying to drive a point home. Uh, being that it's Mother's Day, if my mom told me three to- something three times in a row growing up, I knew to listen. So we should take a note here and listen to what John's trying to tell us. Because the first image I have of overcoming the world is this very comic book image of like Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet with huge muscles and like a very strong jawline. That's where I go to when I think overcome the world. But I don't think that is what John has in mind. I would imagine he's not a huge Marvel guy. Because if we, rem- if we remember back to chapter 2, Matt did a great job of walking us through John's warning to not love the world. And in doing so, he walked us through two major ways that John uses this word world. The first being a reference to humanity in general, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, And this throughout scripture is the object of God's compassion. Think John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And the second use of that term is the systems and powers that rebel against God and the place where Satan exercises his power and tries to thwart the purposes of God. And so it is clear here that this second usage of world is the one that John has in mind. And so if that's what John means by world, what does it mean that as children of God, we overcome it? And to answer that, Let me point us to Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where he explains this really well for us. He says, and you, and that you is all of us before we put faith in Jesus, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, that is the cross of Jesus. And then he says this, 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, I think we can have a tendency to read this passage and to think of the victory of God as just forgiveness of the cross and our debt being canceled. And yes, like that is true. Let us never stop being awestruck that Jesus bore our sin and bore the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven and justified. And we will spend the rest of our lives trying to understand the richness of that truth and the forgiveness we have in Jesus. But at the same time, Paul doesn't stop there. He continues to say this, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the rulers and authorities that Paul is mentioning here, they're not kings, they're not Roman rulers, and they're really, other, they're really no other human ruler of the day. But instead, it's the demonic powers of darkness that wreak havoc on God's good creation, that entrap and ensnare people in sin, and who wage war against the church of Jesus. This is what Jesus has overcome. He has triumphed over them and put them to shame. And so John is pointing to the victory of Jesus and saying that as followers of Jesus, we share in that victory. Because Jesus has triumphed and trampled over the demonic powers of darkness, the power of sin, the curse of death, we also have victory over them and we can overcome them. Notice that John ends verse 5 with the question, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this question is clearly rhetorical and ties us back into what he lays out for us at the beginning of 5 and really through the, whole, the book as a whole. That those who believe in Jesus are children of God. So who overcomes the world? Who is it that can do this? We do, the children of God, the one who's put their faith in Jesus. And in in speaking of this idea of the victory we have in Jesus, we can be so quick to under-realize his victory and to cheapen the power of the cross and the work of the Spirit in us. And so um, I want to highlight just two ways that we can underrealize his victory. And there are many more. We can keep on going with this list. Just want to highlight two big ones for us this morning. First would be, we let our sin define us. As we look through scriptures, we see that a key tactic of Satan and his forces is to accuse, to weigh us down with constant reminders of our sin and to whisper in our ear that we are just the sum of our worst mistakes and thoughts and desires. And that forms our true core identity. And then we can often start to believe it. And when we start to believe it, and when we start to buy into the lie that God looks on us and only sees those things, only sees our sin, only sees the ways that we fail, we can be tempted to just shrug our shoulders and wonder what's even the point of fighting sin 
and we stop even trying and we let sin run rampant and cause carnage in our lives, or we let ourselves get so defeated, so disheartened, that the commands of God we know to be good become that burden we talked about earlier. They become that weight. But let me remind you that those sins, that are sins, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. Your sin debt has been canceled. And as John goes through great lengths to tell us, that's not your identity. Your identity is a child of God. And so realize the victory that you have in Jesus and stop letting your sin define you. And the second way that we can underrealize the victory of Jesus is just by letting sin rule. I, I know that in our world right now, as we scroll through social media or we watch the news or even as we watch the lives of our friends and family, it can feel as though these powers of darkness are just running amok. That there is no hope, and all these talks of victory in Jesus can quickly begin to ring, uh, ring hollow as we stare down the horrors of the world. But let me remind us that when we talk about the victory of Jesus, that it's not just comforting words to us. It's our marching orders. It is clear that there is darkness. It is clear that while Jesus has trampled over powers of darkness and has defeated the devil, that they're still at work in the world, waiting and dreading the day they will face final judgment. But during this time, it is our job as the people of God, as the people of this victory, not to cower back, but to proclaim this victory of God to the world. And we proclaim it as we keep the commands of God, as we seek to be his presence in our communities, as we care for the vulnerable, as we love the hurting, as we pray for our neighbors, and as we share the gospel and proclaim the truth of, and goodness of God, this is how we proclaim victory and live as a people of this victory. And so, friends, when the world looks dark, as it often does, don't turn back, but turn towards it, knowing that as Jesus overcomes the world, so do we. And so, as the children of God, let us be a people who keep the commands of God, who love his commands, and who share and proclaim his victory. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the victory that we have through Jesus. And we confess the many ways that we live as though you have not overcome the world. And so we ask that as we continue to worship and reflect on your word and eat at your table, that your spirit show us how to live as a people who live out your good commands and who proclaim your victory. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.